Please be seated. Let me invite you to, again, open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2 as we continue in our series that we have entitled Freedom, which is the study of Galatians. Galatians reminds us that in Christ we have been set free, and yet we are so foolish, so often we subject ourselves to go back into slavery. And so Paul is writing to the Galatians and to us, God's inspiration to remind us not only of the freedom that should be ours, uh, but to be aware of ways in which we are so prone to stumble back to where we were, and not only for ourselves, uh, but to put other people in bondage and rob them of their freedom as well. While you're looking for the passage, just as a note, just as a reminder, um, this, as uh, Tim prayed this evening, we are turning our church into a shelter for the homeless or homeless neighbors for the better part of the week. One of the reasons we moved it back to this time was so that the William & Mary students would be able uh, to participate. But one of the things I guess we didn't think about is you were gone the whole time that we were planning and signing up teams. So whether you are a student or whether you are somebody in the congregation who has not signed up for shifts this week, we would be delighted to have you come, hang out, build friendships with those who will be our guests this week um, in, in order just to, uh, not only will you bless them, but they will bless you as well. Uh, and that our hope is that the love of Christ would be demonstrated in very practical ways and through friendships. And so just wanna make sure that all of people know that you are invited to come, whether you are officially on shift or not. And so, um, so please come, and whether you're able to come or not, please pray uh, for us this week and for our guests that we truly will be able to bond and that Christ will be pleased and Christ would be made known. Our text this morning comes from Galatians, beginning in, uh, Galatians 2, beginning in verse 11, continuing through the end of the chapter. Before we read, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do pray that you would speak to us. Give us clarity of your glory and the glory of your grace. Help us to understand our own hearts as reflected through our behaviors and attitudes. And then help us to see Jesus in whom we live and breathe and have our being. Father, may your spirit be at work. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Galatians 2, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. 
For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The word of the Lord may give us understanding from it. This passage always seems to me to be a scene straight out of some junior high lunchroom. Most of you can identify from your own memories and own experience, and even those who were homeschooled have probably seen enough teen movies that you know what I mean. You can imagine people scattered around through this lunchroom, all seated at different tables, people sitting at tables, mostly with people who are somewhat like themselves. Over in one corner, you have the band people. In another corner, you have the jocks. Someplace else, you've got the academic overachievers. And then scattered throughout, but somehow consolidated, you have a group of the masses of the people who are well-rounded in their interests and yet perhaps not fully developed. These are the people who tend to be kind of nameless, faceless people, at least, whether middle school or some continue that way in high school, because there's still works that God is at work. But they tend to be contented. They have their own insecurities, like everybody does, but they have their own joys. They have plenty of friends. They, they have basically are very happy and not particularly concerned with whatever stations the junior high society seems to put upon people. Then one day, for whatever the reason, one of the cool kids, maybe even the most popular guy in town, just sits down at the table of some of the nameless, faceless people. And as he begins to talk with them and they begin to share their lives together, as they begin to kid around and joke around and encourage one another, they, they truly, there's a friendship that begins to develop. And over several days, the friendship becomes common and appreciated and even valued. And then one day with no notice whatsoever for a reason that seems stunning and shocking, while sitting at the table, this cool kid just stands up, grabs his tray, and not only leaves the table, but leaves the entire room. People are a little surprised, a little hurt, a little disappointed. Particularly so when they find out that his motive was because some of the other social elite were kind of picking at him, making fun of him because of his new friends. As foolish as it is, this is essentially what's going on in this passage. Peter, who had left Jerusalem, and now Paul shifts the scene in this story to Antioch, a community that is filled with Gentile, but Gentile believers, a community that's filled with passionate Gentile believers, a church of believers that had become known not only for their love for Jesus Christ, but become known of their sending of their people, of missionary endeavors throughout the, uh, throughout the region so that the gospel of Christ would be proclaimed elsewhere. These were a passionate people for Jesus Christ. So in one sense, it's no surprise that Peter, who was the pillar of the church in Jerusalem, would be curious and interested and desire to go and to meet with these fellow believers, to get to know them, to become part. And that's exactly what he did. He went, he joined with them, became friends with the people, shared life, shared stories, shared laughter, shared, shared meals with them, and developed and cultivated friendships. Mutual, beautiful picture of what the kingdom of God is like. And then one day with no warning, Peter essentially picked up his tray, not only left the table of fellowship, but then walked out of the room entirely. And the people were stunned. They didn't understand why. 
except they looked around and realized that there was a, a new group. Some others had come from Jerusalem. Those are known as the followers of James. In other words, they were believers in Christ who grew up Jewish and who were followers of Jesus Christ, who loved Jesus Christ, but because it was their cultural practice as they grew up to follow certain Jewish prescriptions, they continued to do this and also most of them were under the wrong idea that this was the essence of Christianity. To believe in Jesus Christ and be saved by what he has done and also to keep certain rules because in their mind that's what Christians do. And so they had a checklist of things that you do and don't do and they acknowledged that there were people who were probably saved by Christ who didn't keep those rules but in their minds or at least in the culture at that time there were a perception of second-class Christians, those who really didn't keep the rules, and serious Christians, spiritual Christians, the spiritual elite, those who trusted in Jesus Christ and who did all the right things. Peter was motivated because these people had come. And as we'll see, he was concerned with the reputation that he had with those people, more concerned about that than he even was about the new friendships that he had formed in Antioch. And Paul, seeing this, was angered with a righteous anger and he calls Peter out and we see what he says in verse 14 when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel I said to Cephas before all of them if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews in other words he's pointing out to Peter look for the past couple weeks however long you've been hanging out here You've been eating with, you've been neglecting all of the old rules, not because they're wrong, but because they're just not important. In fact, you knew that. You received a vision from God. You're the one through whom God communicated that to us. Do not call unclean what I have declared to be clean. And yet these people show up. And you cave. And you leave. And you turn your back not only on friends, but on other brothers and sisters who are in Christ. Paul's declaration here is the heart of this particular passage, his challenge, his charge. And it's something that you and I need to hear and need to take seriously. Because this is not just an issue that was, you know, as the church was getting formed and people trying to figure out how that went. Because at the heart of this issue is the same heart that beats within all of us here. And it manifests itself in every church, and in this case, particularly every conservative church, as we'll see, this is a conservative issue from within. Paul says, you are not keeping in step with the truth of the gospel. Or as the NIV saying, you are not acting in line. Now the word that Paul uses here in the Greek is orthopodusin, which probably doesn't mean much to anybody, but you know, obligatory once a month Greek word. Now, but you might here's some things in there that you are familiar with. You know, the pod, like a podiatrist dealing with the foot, or the orthopedics, they're all related. What the word actually means is walking rightly. And the word walking here is a metaphor for the way of life. We hear keep in step or keep in line, and we might have the image of a high school marching band that disciplines itself and prides itself on everybody doing what they're supposed to do whenever they're maneuvering, and then every once in a while in some high schools, somebody will fall out of step or not keep in line, and it gives a chuckle to some of the parents in the stands, but overall, other than for those who are in the band who are striving for perfection, it's not that big of a deal. It may be ugly, but it's hardly scandalous. 
Paul is saying here, it's not you're keeping out of line, that you're, you're not towing the line. Paul is saying that you're walking in the wrong way. The picture, not of a high school band, but more like somebody who is engaging in a hike on the Appalachian Trail, where the, mar- or the, the path has been marked out well by those who are experts who have blazed it. Christ and the gospel has blazed the path through him to say, here's how you begin, here's how you end, do not leave me. And what the, Peter's behavior had been, as well as the other Jews, as well as Christians today who are tempted by the same temptation Peter had, is that they would leave the well-marked path of the Appalachian Trail to go on a side trail or to go on some path of their own, a path that does not lead them where they want to go. It's not a matter of mere ugliness, as ugly as it is. Paul is incensed. Paul is uptight because it is a matter of life and death. It is a matter of eternity. It is a matter of spiritual health and vibrancy. And so Paul challenged them very directly in this story as he's writing to the Galatians, recounting this event that had taken place in Antioch so that the Galatians would understand, so that we would understand what it means to live our lives in line with the grace of our God. Now, as we look at this passage, I want to do so in a way that we're going to dig in a little bit deeper. We're going to look at uh, at both Peter and Paul uh, and really what was moving them because there's a lot for us to understand there in order for us particularly to get the benefit of what Paul explains is walking in line with the gospel of Christ. When we look at Peter, we'll just call that, it's the, we're looking at the fear-filled fool. And when we look at Paul, we'll look at the faithful friend. And after we've looked at the two of them, we'll answer the question of what does it mean to walk in line with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because Paul in verses 16 through 21 shows us the trail markers that we should never allow to get out of our sight. So let's begin with the fear-filled fool, Peter. We're told that he's fear-filled because that's we're in verse 12. He was fearing the circumcision party. One of the things that we need to recognize is that fear itself is a monster causes us to think, to feel, and to do what we might not otherwise do. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was not entirely right when he said we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Because in this life there's a lot of things that we can fear. This is a broken, dangerous world. And a lot of things can happen to us or to the people that we love. And so there is reason to fear besides fear itself. But even though that's the reality, fear itself is a monster that is dangerous and has its effect, and it had its effect on Peter here. We're told that he did what he did because he was afraid, which then begs the question, what does Peter have to be afraid of? I mean, this is a guy who had walked with Jesus. This is a guy who was appointed to be an apostle by God, who had the privilege to preach to the masses at Pentecost, challenging them, saying the unpleasant thing is, you're guilty and you have no hope, except that God did this so that you would have hope. Jesus died so that if you believe, you not only have hope, but you can have life. People had preached that. He had the revelation about clean and unclean. He had lived a life and was friends with Gentiles and Jews alike. And yet, all of a sudden, as the wind blows in, Peter is not only feeling fear, 
is impacted by fear. Now, we could look at it and say it just might be part of Peter's brokenness. I mean, he certainly has a history of it. Those who are Bible students will remember that on the night that Christ was betrayed and arrested, Peter was confronted with a little bitty slave girl and said, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? And he says, I don't know what you're talking about, and I don't know him. Because he was consumed, gripped with fear of what the people might think and do. He was afraid to be found out even by someone who in that society had no standing whatsoever. So it may just be part of his brokenness and part of his makeup. It is true for many of us that that is something we experience over and over again. But the reality is what we are told is he had a very specific fear. He was fearing the circumcision group. Now, again, there's not anything they could do to him. It's not like he got elected apostle by the popularity of the people. God appointed him to be an apostle. That wasn't going away, no matter what people thought of him. Peter, much like many of us, was very concerned about what other people thought. And these were the people he grew up with. These were the people he respected. These were the people that he thought a lot of. And he seemed to be consumed with a fear that they would not think that he was as good as they wanted him to th- that he wanted them to think he was. There doesn't seem to be any other explanation. Because there's no consequences that could possibly come against him, and, and yet he was filled with fear. Because of that, Peter actually becomes a great object lesson for us. Because there are many in evangelical and conservative churches who assume because we know we're in Christ, because we know our standing, because we know our doctrine, we are not subject to succumbing to fear. But if Peter was one who could be influenced, you have way too high an estimation of yourself to assume that you are immune. All of us can be prone to this. Fear of one thing or another. And fear drives, but drives us without wisdom. Now what is it that fear made Peter do? Peter withdrew from fellowship with other believers. That's kind of rude. But Paul says there's actually something far more at stake here. Peter's behavior was actually a functional denial of the gospel that Peter believed and preached. Peter had taken a posture of essentially self-help, self-service, self-salvation. In other words, these rules that many mistakenly for generations had thought that if I follow the rules, I'll be right with God, Peter knew better. And yet the first thing that he did when he felt fear, not even threatened, but felt fear, was to begin to embrace these rules. He never rejected Christ. He continued to. And the people who came never rejected Christ. They believed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as necessary for their salvation. Paul is pointing out that Peter, by not keeping in line with the truth of the gospel, he was, in his actions, declaring far louder than any preaching he had done that he believes Jesus plus, that there are different classes of Christians. There are the serious Christians, the ones who not only believe in Jesus, but they do these things that tradition dictates they should or should not do. And then there are others who believe in Jesus, who probably are Christians, but second class, or maybe they're no class at all, no Christians whatsoever. 
Peter's action actually had unintended consequences and he was denying the gospel because of his behavior. The thing that's important for us in this church to recognize is that this was not, Paul was saying this is an attack on the gospel. It's a denial of the gospel. But this is not what sometimes we talk about, a denial of the gospel. We get uptight because there are people who gather together in churches who will openly deny that they don't believe in the virgin birth or they don't believe that Jesus died or rose and maybe they don't think it's necessary to believe those things. That's an entirely different issue. Important as that is, that's not the issue that's at stake. These people had sound doctrine. These people believed all the right things, and yet the attack was coming from the inside, from conservative Christians who were tempted not to deny, but to believe and add, and in so doing, deny. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing is everything. And they are saying Jesus plus fill in the blanks is something. And Paul says that's not the gospel at all. And Paul also points out to Peter that his behavior isn't only hurting him. It's contagious. And fear is contagious. When we allow fear, particularly fear, and uh, to shape the way that we live our lives, other people notice. And in this case, Paul said, look, after you, the other Jews, and even Barnabas, who went around declaring to Gentiles The only thing that matters is Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Believe in that and you'll be saved. You'll have life. You'll have hope. Barnabas, who understood that, Paul says, you know, apparently Barnabas looked and said, well, Peter may know something. And even he began to, with his life, deny the gospel. We need to be very aware in our own lives of what motivates us and our actions, and to make sure that we are not allowing anything other than who we truly are in Christ to be guiding our steps. And be very aware of what we are afraid of and how fear works in us so that we can walk in line with the gospel and that by so doing, we can encourage others to walk in line as well. Now, Paul also Now, as we look at him as the faithful friend, we see his responses in verse uh, 14. Um, As we've already looked at, Paul said, I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, and I said before all of them, if if you are a Jew and yet you live like a Gentile, why would you make Gentiles live like Jews? You don't do it, why should they? And Paul's response is important for us to recognize because Paul is reminding us of an important principle that we'll elaborate on in a moment. But he's reminding us that we never outgrow, we never move beyond the gospel. The gospel is not a foundation, like a building, and then you just kind of put it down so that you can build the important stuff on it. It's not the door into the kingdom, it is the entire package. Paul, by saying you're not living in, keeping in step with, or you're not in line with the truth of the gospel, he's saying that the gospel is not only how we enter into relationship with God, but if we're supposed to keep in line with it and keep in step with that, well, then it is ongoing implications and importance for the way we live our lives. Through the gospel, the truth, all the truth that the gospel proclaims, we should see ourselves, we should see our motives, we should see our goals, our desires, the path 
to what we ultimately desire, which is to be with Christ, the goal, the objective of everyone who loves Christ because they know that Christ has loved us. And Paul says that's what's at stake here. Now, one of the things that I noticed also in this is that, not so much from the text, but as this text is read a lot of times, it, it seems that this text is used by a number of people as a, a model or a justification for confrontation of other believers for anything that gets on our nerves. Anywhere that somebody disagrees with us in a secondary doctrinal issue or behavior issues, we say, well, look, Paul saw something that wasn't right, and he was propelled by love and the truth, and so he went and he spoke, and, and he confronted Peter in front of everybody. And yet it's a misreading, it's a superficial reading if we see Paul simply just confronting and validating our confrontation of others. Of course, we don't call it that. We call it accountability. But as a friend of mine pointed out, it is our accountability. What we tend to do is we shave leaves off of the tree. We go for behaviors that either we don't like or sometimes are wrong. And what we want to do is we clip those leaves and even branches off of the tree. And what Paul is saying here and Paul says throughout all of his ministry is you are so concerned with clipping leaves, you're missing what Jesus did because Jesus does not come to clip off leaves. Jesus came to blow up the whole stump out of the ground. The whole thing is rotten and needs to be replaced. And if you're going to spend your time trying to clip this off, you move your attention off of the radical nature of the gospel, which says you need to die, you are dead in your sin, and yet in Christ you are made alive, that you are no longer your own, as Paul declares here, and we'll look at it in a moment. That says the whole thing is messed up. And that even as believers, we're impacted by that, even though we're forgiven and we have been empowered, our sin nature still has impact on us. Otherwise, we wouldn't be subject to fear in the first place. And so Paul is not saying and giving an example of just picking at things rightly or wrongly that people do different or disagree. What Paul is doing is he's confronting that very action, that very behavior and saying, never move off the gospel. But we also need to realize Paul was fighting not only for the gospel itself, but he was fighting for fellowship of the church. He was fighting for Peter. He was fighting for all of the others because Peter's action had divided the church. It had confused the body of Christ. It sends, raises the question, are there different classes of Christians? Are there Christians who are Christians and who are serious? And so therefore... They don't eat certain things, or they only eat things that nobody would want to eat, or uh, are the Christians who are free, but the only identification of them is that they are Christians. And Paul says very clearly, the only thing that matters is that we belong to Christ. Paul is fighting because he's declaring to us and reminding us is that Christ's church is a community like no other. It is a family. It is a gathering of broken people who have been made whole by Christ. It is an assembly of those whose affection has been shaped because Christ has affection for us. It tears down every social barrier that tends to keep us apart. And it makes us one together in Christ. 
Peter's behavior, as simple as it was, threatened that very thing because it divided the church, divided the people, made some feel uncomfortable, underworthy, and at the same time validated people who think that if they do the right things and don't do other things, somehow they're better. Paul says, I'll have none of that. Paul is declaring to us in his confrontation and in the words specifically is that Christianity is not simply a matter of doctrine and words. It is a walk. It is a way of life. The way of life is built, 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 built on and lived through the gospel period. Which brings us to the question then, what does it mean to walk in line with the gospel? And Paul does outline that in these verses, and I unfortunately don't have the time to uh, go into great detail uh, with that because these are a pregnant, pregnant passage. But I would encourage everybody to go through and read it this week a few times and to think about what we do talk about and then the other things that are filled in and see the beautiful picture and the, the wisdom that Paul is giving to us. But what we do know is we look at the high points of what Paul is talking about is that he tells us first and foremost is that, again, we never graduate from the gospel, but the gospel is just a new way of seeing where we're going and seeing and measuring ourselves. We never add, we never subtract, we never move off or out of the gospel itself. That's what he says in verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of law that through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul does an interesting thing here because he's writing to believers and even as he's confronting Peter, he's confronting a believer and all the people in question are believers and Paul appoints to the issue of justification, how we become Christians in the first place. And he's not doing that simply because it's elementary. And let's start at what we all agree, and then we can talk. Paul is saying, this is it. You have to get this right, because if this part is wrong, or if you move away from this at all, then you're on the wrong trail, and you're going to end up in the wrong place. Theologian Richard Lovelace has observed that most of us, most Christians, average evangelicals today, make the same mistake that seemed to be happening here. These people were assuming that the measure of God's love for them was based on what they did. What Lovelace says that the average American evangelical, no matter what their doctrine says, is we base our justification on our sanctification when our sanctification should be based on our justification. Now let me translate that for those of you who are normal and don't speak theological ease. If someone was to ask you, does God love you and how do you know? What Lovelace is saying is that the responses that we would give, the average person, most people would tend to say, all of you today could say this, well, I go to church. God's got to be pleased with that. And then you have a list of 
other tremendous qualities, all of you, of things that you do, things that you don't do, that are commendable, that are good, that are noble, and most of those are, I hope, are driven by the fact that you want to honor God. And so you look at that and you look at the list and say, you know, that's how I know God loves me. But Paul is saying, no, here's the reality. Whatever those things are worth, if someone says, does God love you and how do you know? The answer is, yes, I know God loves me because God sent his son who died for me because he loved me. That's how I know he loves me. And because I know he loves me, I am free to live my life in relationship to him, to honor him. I'm free. It makes all the difference in the world, and yet we are prone to invert that. And while Peter doctrinally understood, he lived the way that most of us live, that we think that the choices that we make, on whether it's school or diet or politics or dress, or those are just the easy ones if I'm picking on you, I'm, I'm guilty as well. I have lots of preferences that I seriously wonder why the rest of you can't figure it out to become more like me. But God in his grave now. Um, but, uh, but those are just very common things. And we know that there are people who are Christians who do this and do that. But we tend to wonder about them or respond in annoyance. Dividing the body of Christ, not over the identity of the gospel, but over our idea that our justification is, can, is based upon our sanctification. Paul is challenging that and saying, we must understand walking in line with the truth of the gospel means always remembering the gospel, what it declares, and it declares that all who are trusting in Jesus, you are forgiven, you are free. go to Christian school, homeschool, public school, to be gluten-free, to be over-glutened, whatever. <laughs> There's wisdom, but it's not a matter of our justification or sanctification. Paul says we've got to remember that. Paul says also that there is a union that we have with Christ, verse 20. To remember the union that we have. A familiar passage, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Uh, uh, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Beautiful passage, many have memorized, worthy of memorization. In the essence of this passage, it does tell us that we are in union with Christ. And so to live in step with the gospel, in line with the gospel, means to be reminded, to remind ourselves, to always remember, to see the marker on the trail of the union in Christ and our identity and our identifications come from that. One of the best illustrations I've heard about this is probably lost in many in Williamsburg, but the rest of the country it fits is just the identification that many of us tend to have with our schools or our favorite sports teams. Williamsburg tends to be a little more broader, so most of you are probably not quite as messed up as 
a few of us, particularly those of us who grew up in the Southeast Conference territory. But I mean, think about it. Our identity with our teams shapes what we wear, what we spend money on, what we give our attention and studying the details, who we eat with. I mean, sorry, ben, I don't see Ben, but Ben's not coming to my house during the Alabama game, at least not when Alabama keeps beating Tennessee. I'm not, I'm not in fellowship with him. <laughs> Gonna be people willing to wear orange. Because that's spiritual, of course, but it's a beauty. That's why God made the sunsets that beautiful. Anyway, um, whole other issue. But if you think about all the things that go into that, and most people are normal. There's a lot of nuts, but there are most people are normal. We can keep it within good fun, and we don't take it too seriously. But what Paul is saying here is, what if Christians actually recognize that our identity is in Christ, our union with Christ? We are in Christ. Christ is in us, and that was our identity. And that we would celebrate not we won, we lost, but we would celebrate Christ has won the victory. We always have reason to celebrate we're told that we are clothed in Christ. We are hidden in Christ. We are united in Christ. Christ, all who are in Christ, that's who we fellowship with and have meals with. To live in line with the gospel is to recognize the union that we have in Christ. And that our identity and our identification marker is that as well. There's freedom for all sorts of differences. But the gospel that permeates our lives, trumps them all, and rather than dividing us, brings together a beautiful mosaic. But to experience the union with Christ, Paul says we have to experience two kinds of deaths. First he says in verse 19, it's a death to the law. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. And then in verse 20, he says there's a death to self. So let's look first at the law. Paul says that he died to the law. What does he mean that he died to the law? I mean, he's not saying I hate the law. Paul elsewhere talks about the law is good, especially when it's used lawfully. Paul has a high view of the law, a high value of, of the law. But Paul is saying that he died to the law because in his past, which he actually points out to Peter, he's saying to Peter, in essence, Peter, you're trying to keep the law. I keep the law. I have kept the law. You haven't even closed. Paul is a Pharisee of Pharisees. Peter was a fisherman. He had no idea what trying to keep the law was like. Paul said, I kept the law, and the law killed me. And the law led me to kill others. It's important that we understand that because when we trim other people's bushes by pointing out their behavior, we're not usually doing it redemptively. We're not getting at the root of the core in a way that's going to make a difference. We're killing the relationship. We're killing the faith. We're killing the testimony of Christ's church because we want to change behaviors and then leave the rotten stump. Paul says, let's get to the, Peter, do you understand your motives? So let's I was killed. The law killed me. What does he mean by it killed me? Well, I think in one sense when he realized that the law was leading him to hate others, it invalidated him. And in another sense when he realized when he tried to save himself by keeping the law, 
The law does nothing but kill. It points out the law can save nobody. And so Paul in his passion says, by works, no one is justified. And so Paul is saying that the the necessary death of the law is to recognize not that the law is bad, but that it's not the law. As Paul says, I died to the law so that I might have nothing left other than Christ, what he's done. So when I die to the law, I can live for God. If we don't die to the law, we live to ourselves. Then Paul says also the other death that needs to take place is that of self-death, death to self. Verse 20, Paul's obviously not saying that he's physically dead because he says, I died and yet the life I live. Nor is he saying he's spiritually dead. Nor is he saying he's mystically dead. He's using the word dead here as a, a metaphor for the way that he lives his life. He's saying that in one sense he has died And it's simply that he has so identified with the cross of Christ that he has demoted himself and promoted Christ. Whatever he can achieve, he realizes is is nothing. But when the law or his own self-effort is no longer valid, no longer worth anything, then he values the only thing that has hope, which is the cross of Christ and the union that comes when we die to the self and to the law. Let me wrap up with this. Some of you have probably seen the movie Dawn of the Living Dead. That was actually filmed in the mall that was around the corner from the church that I had the privilege to serve in Pittsburgh. Several of our church members had been extras in that when they were teens or older children. They were the zombies that were coming to attack the good guys in the film. I'm not particularly a fan of the genre, but I watched it simply because there were people that I knew that were, well, I guess undead. And so I thought, let's see what they look like as no longer dead. And I understand, in part sympathetic because I'm not a fan of the genre, that there are certainly questions of whether or not it's helpful or good or even ethical dilemmas of watching such films. I mean, theology itself is horrendous. And then the ethical dilemma that comes to mind is this. If the people who are undead were once alive, but then had died, but now are undead. If they were alive, then they were people who were created after the image of God. And even though they have died and didn't rise as resurrected, but they became undead, is it appropriate for those of us who are still alive to try to shoot them in the head in order to kill those people who were born after the image of God? It's a serious question, but we won't deal with that right now. (laughs) I mean, it just poses all sorts of dilemmas for us uh, like that. But I also look at it in this way. If this movie can serve a purpose for us, and I think it can, that reminds us of who we are. People who, to have union with Christ, to walk with him, means that we have died the two deaths. But rather than trusting in the resurrection that we are promised, we like to come undead. I died to myself, but I keep coming back in full fear and foolishness. I died to the law, but give me enough criticism, I'll give you a list of how I'm better than you. It's my list, you've got your own list, never goes anywhere for anybody. But my pride, my life that died, doesn't like to stay dead. And I think that's true for all of us. And so if we recognize a really, really bad movie reminds us of who we tend to be and that when you're dead, you should stay dead, 
so that Christ might live in us, it serves its purpose. But to walk in line with the gospel means that we understand, Paul sums it up in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In other words, my behaviors, if I think anything I do is going to make me loved more by God or better than you, then I'm saying that it's possible that we could clean ourselves up. Therefore, while it was nice of Jesus to die, it was purposeless, which would make it foolishness, which then denies our condition from which we need to be rescued in the first place. Only when I recognize the need to be dead, the need to be in union with Christ, the need of the gospel that permeates my life, that gives me an ability to see the promises of God and the path that is marked along. And every other choice we make is simply window dressing that we are free to make, but they do not identify us as being Christian or non-Christian, only the cross of Christ and how we respond to that does. May God help us to remain dead so that we may experience life in Christ. Father, bless us and help us to understand the power and the hope and the joy that is ours in the gospel. I pray in Christ.